I was very um, amazed by her. I was very proud to have a cousin like her. She has a lot of energy. When she comes in a room, there was electricity in the air. She looks at you and you, you feel that you exist. Really, I miss her now because I don't have any friend like this. She was calling me very often. And sometimes I say, oh, please, Sophie, don't call me. I, I, I don't have anything to say. We, call, we talk already the, yesterday and we spent two hours. It's okay. Uh, today I don't know what to say. <laughs> but, but, you know, she said, oh, please, and yes, we can talk of everything. She, she was loving talking, yes. And, and if I don't call him back uh, so quickly, she called me. Hi, Hanya said, Sophie, please call me back. Come on, you didn't call me back. Please call me. Sophie, Sophie, please call me back. <laughs> she was so cute. Please, come on, Agnès, please call me. I have new things to say. She was so fun. Absolutely, Sophie, yes. <laughs> so cool, so, so great. Irresistible. I don't know how to say that. Irresistible? Irresistible. Irresistible. She was really a, a so nice girl. Really, and so fun, and so really, we really miss her. Yeah, we lost someone. Yeah, we can say that. Huh? We really lost someone. lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Thank you for jumping into Sophie's case with me. It's deeply troubling and there's still so much more to discuss. And thank you so much for your questions about the case. I've been answering most of them within each episode and I'll try and answer more in this episode. Now, as you know, Sophie's case is still unresolved to this day and so questions are important and keeping the spotlight on Sophie and the momentum going is key too. Now, there has been some good news. There's been some movement in a positive direction, which I'll tell you about later on. But before I dive in, I just want to give a trigger warning. The material in this episode and others, well, it's not an easy listen. Murder and violence are serious and traumatic matters. And at the end of this case is a family who are deeply traumatised and who are still searching for answers. And on that note, one of the other things that really haunts me about this case is the fact that Sophie's parents, Marguerite and George, found out via the news, via the media, that their daughter had been murdered. How utterly horrific for them. And again, that's something that just should never happen. And I've learned so much more about Sophie about who she was whilst continuing my research and analysis. And I want to share with you so much more about her character. So pivoting back to the clip that you just heard at the start of the episode, first up speaking, well, that was Fred, Sophie's cousin, talking about her. He went on to say that he would babysit for Pierre-Louis and she, Sophie, lived a very simple life in an apartment after she divorced from her first husband. He said that she was very gentle, that he remembered one time she let a homeless person sleep in her car 
she just asked them to clean up in the morning. And there was another time when she invited a homeless person into her house and she cooked them a meal. She was kind and generous too, and trusting. And you also heard Agnes, Sophie's best friend, talking about how much fun Sophie was, how free, funny, and how irresistible Sophie was. Irresistible, that word. I like her description and anecdote. She really colours Sophie's character. She describes Sophie as joyous, as sunny and beautiful and passionate. She was passionate about her work. She cared. She was not a huge one for small talk. She talked about real things that mattered. That was in her character. She was an exceptional person. She loved art and literature and music. She loved her books, and she may well have been bookish, but she loved life. She was really someone, Agnes said. And I love how she said that too. Not someone's daughter, i.e. belonging to someone, as we so often hear. She was much more than a victim. Sophie was a woman of beauty and substance. She was elegant. And she sought refuge in Ireland, a place of beauty, where she should have been safe. And what's clear to me is that Sophie was very much loved and valued. And both Fred and Agnes wanted to do her justice when they spoke about her at the trial in Paris. And to circle back to Fred's point about Sophie being trusting, now the trusting aspect is important. That tells me she may well have opened the door to someone that she didn't know or that she didn't know particularly well. And remember, Sophie may well have had a bad feeling about the trip. She asked lots of people to go with her. And this was the first time she had travelled alone there. Agnes's biggest regret, just like Sophie's mother and so many others, they wished they'd travelled with her to Ireland. Now Sophie, along with Guy Girard, who was the director that Sophie worked with, they were looking into doing a documentary about violence and a murder committed by a man who took a wrong turn, as they called it. Sophie suggested that they should speak to a local poet who wrote about violence. Guy recognised Bailey's name two years later. Daniel, Sophie's husband, also said that Sophie never courted the media because she didn't like it. She didn't like to be in front of the camera. She didn't like the spotlight. And when they were first married, he'd invited the media in to do a piece on them. And Sophie was very upset. She didn't want to take part. Daniel said that was one of the reasons why he didn't speak out in the media after her murder. He said that Sophie wouldn't have wanted him to. And he also said that Sophie was assertive, that she would speak her mind, and that he felt the killer had made a pass at her and he'd been rejected by Sophie. Well, that's interesting to me. It sounds like Daniel felt similar to what mine and Jim's analysis of the crime scene reveals. And remember, Jim and I were going on victimology and the crime scene assessment, and that gives a bit more insight and information. And I'm telling you this as it's important to understand the victimology. And in this case, it's important because there's been many judgments made about Sophie and written about her in the media, most of them wrong. And so I want to ensure those who knew Sophie best, those who loved her, I want their voices to be platformed and amplified and not get lost in the noise and I want to set the record straight. And so now to some of the questions. Well, one question that I posed was about the doors of Sophie's house being locked. In Michael Sheridan's book, 
the murder of Sophie, he stated that the rear door was unlocked and the front door locked. This would infer that whoever called, called at the back door, which again, if right, might indicate familiarity, someone who was known. However, just to reiterate, there was no sign of boot prints or any disturbance or a struggle in the house, and therefore everything happened outside the house, as I've said before. Sophie may well not have felt safe enough or comfortable enough to invite the person in, and that's why she put her boots on and went outside. In my opinion, it's more likely that Sophie had been in bed when there was a knock at the door. I believe she finished her call with Daniel, and then she went to bed. Now, why do I say that? Well, her sheets were pulled back, and some of her clothes she'd been wearing were in the bathroom. And then there was the food on the counter. Well, that could have been from the night before, her picking at a few things, including the bread, and not making a full meal. We know she'd had a scone and tea at the pub earlier, so that would make sense. And a clarifier, that it was a full moon that night, and so it may well have been lighter than normal. And then Jim asked a question about Ian Bailey's criminal record. He had convictions for two assaults, both on Jules, and for being drunk in charge of a vehicle. So, violence and recklessness. Now that's important in my opinion. And he didn't have the money to make bail in one of the assaults on Jules, and so he spent three weeks in prison. I have to say more about Bailey, of course. I said I would come to him. I simply can't ignore him, as much as I might feel inclined to, given the amount of focus that he's had in the media. And it's important to remember that it was he and he alone who situated himself front and centre in this case right from the start. He wanted to resurrect his journalism career, but it felt more than that to me. Having watched him on camera, it's clear he enjoys being in the limelight. He can't help himself and he continues to try and grab the spotlight at every opportunity and then levels criticism on those who focus on his behaviour. And he has, unfortunately, become central to the narrative. Now, as Daniel said, he's become famous for apparently not being Sophie's killer. And like I said, I can't ignore that. Also, the challenge with this case is not having all the full police reports, the statements, the transcripts, all the primary sources, and therefore I'm somewhat limited about what I can say. Now, I know the chief superintendent submitted a 2,000-page file to the director of public prosecutions, James Hamilton, in Dublin. 2,000 pages of rumours, according to Bailey. Now, the former DPP, James Hamilton, made a decision not to charge Ian Bailey, Hamilton said he made his decision having read the Garda investigation file and taken advice from Robert Sheehan, the official in charge of the file, and to senior counsel. Now, he stated that there was insufficient evidence for a prosecution. I've analysed most of the DPP report, and I do want to comment on it specifically too, and so this won't be the last episode on the case. And by the way, it's not normal for a DPP to read all the files, because about 2,000 come into the office annually, probably much more now, but he decided to read the file apparently due to the high-profile nature of the case. Now, when I look at a case, and when I'm involved with a case, 
And when you re-examine a case, you never know what you might come across. You never really know what material exists. And there are a few avenues that I've been exploring, including the DPP report. Now, in my opinion, it's a very important document in this case. And I really want to understand the facts and the evidence and the decision-making by the DPP. And I think it's important you hear the detail contained within that report, particularly as it's had such serious ramifications, namely no charges being laid against Ian Bailey, and that Ian Bailey uses the report to say that he was exonerated. Now that's a big claim, and rarely, if ever, should a prosecutor or DA's report exonerate someone, nor is it their job to do so. New evidence may come to light, forensics or otherwise, that may implicate someone in a crime. Therefore, it's very dangerous ground for a DPP or a DA to claim someone is exonerated. Now, as I've said before, this really is a case about the totality of circumstances. And I've worked on cases that have been successfully brought to trial and the defendant convicted without any forensic evidence that links a defendant to the murder. Now, in these cases, the prosecuting lawyer worked very closely with the police and they built the case from the perspective of each piece of evidence. Well, it points to one person. And put simply, we have to show that it was simply not possible for the murder to have been committed by anyone other than the defendant. Now, this was true of the Millie Dowler case and Amelie Delagrange and Marsha McDonnell. The prosecuting lawyer was a QC called Brian Altman, and he really ran a masterclass in how you build a case when there's no forensic evidence, where it's purely the totality of the circumstances that point to the defendant and show that it was not possible for it to be anybody else. You see, with most cases, it's not about one piece of information or one piece of evidence or one fact. And I try and understand each and every aspect of the case in order to build the picture, the totality of what went on. That's what must be taken into account. And this is what happens in the real world. Unless you have overwhelming forensics, but even if you do, you still want to look at all the other information that's cooperative for the slam dunk. Now, you may think this is rudimentary and ipso facto, but it's important to point out and each piece of circumstantial evidence, each piece of information, well, it may not look significant in isolation, but when you piece it all together, when it's laid alongside the other facts and the other evidence, a bigger picture emerges that's often overwhelmingly compelling, or not, as the case may be. It may force you to ask more questions of witnesses or of the evidence or the information, and it may take you in a different direction entirely. And that's okay too. That's the whole point of having an open mind, particularly when we're talking about the investigation. Nick Foster's book, Murder at Roaring Water, the inside story of the death of Sophie Toscan Duplantier, is also an interesting read. Now, you saw Nick in Jim Sheridan's documentary, Murder at the Cottage. Nick attended the trial in Paris, and he spent time with Bailey and Jules Thomas, and he also had access to the police report and the DPP report. He also had over 700 statements from witnesses, and he interviewed various witnesses, including Ariana Borina. 
Now, Nick says he went into the case with an open mind. He was intrigued like many. His curiosity peaked and he jumped on a plane to Ireland and sat in on the libel trial. He introduced himself to Bailey and he spent time with Bailey, who saw him as a, in inverted commas, supporter, his word, not mine. And having spent time with him and Nick having disclosed that he was going to write a book, Bailey then gave him a USB with the police file and the DPP report on it and told him to read it. Now, what better gift could an author or journalist or an investigator wish for? It's also an interesting move by Bailey. He's either innocent, reckless, or supremely confident and arrogant that the contents come out in his favour, or that he can persuade others of his innocence. Now, let's see where you land once you've heard some of the detail. And again, to reiterate... Bailey courted the media right from the start, and he's used to dealing with and working with journalists. He is a journalist, after all. And it was at his directive and will, and it would be remiss not to focus attention on him. How would that even be possible, now given the history of the case? It would be a grave misstep on my behalf to simply ignore him and the so-called evidence pointing to him. And if you've watched the two docu-series and listened to the podcast... Bailey has situated himself in all of them. And we've also all seen firsthand that he's in his element in front of the camera or directing Jim Sheridan, as well as grabbing the microphone from the West Court podcasters. So I don't believe it's a stretch to say that Bailey is a man who is used to using his physical stature, his charm, his guile in order to get his own way. And he can be bombastic, confrontational and domineering when things don't go his way. And it served him well on a superficial basis to date. Now he's been called confident, arrogant, and that he knows no boundaries and loves the limelight. And it's also been said that he's a ladies' man. In 1994, he wrote this in his diary. I absolutely need mental stimulation and unfortunately I cannot get it from Jules. She is fine as a sexual partner, but as a soulmate, I feel little in common. I'm often taken by brighter young things. Now that quote is in Nick Foster's book. Again, Bailey's own words, not mine. Now that provides some insight into how he viewed Jules, as well as his roving eye. And that's not all. Colette Gallagher, a musician, had been playing in the bar one night where Bailey and Jules were drinking in the summer of 1993 when Jules invited anyone who wanted to go back to their house for more drinks. You'll recall Jules owned the house and Bailey had moved himself in there. Colette and another musician, Ronnie, took Jules up on her offer and after a few drinks back at the cottage, they were asked if they wished to stay over rather than drive the long drive back to Baltimore. Colette assumed that they would stay in the house, but Bailey suggested Colette stay in the studio in the double bed there. He walked her over there. Colette said she got to bed around 4am, and about an hour later, she felt someone in bed with her, and then a hand on her leg. She moved to get out of the bed, and the door opened, and Jules suddenly appeared. Colette tried to grab her clothes, and Jules shouted at her for being in bed with Ian. It was only then that she realised what had happened and she was horrified. Now she gave a statement to the guards and she said this. I said to Jules I had no idea it was him that was there. I saw that the upper half of Ian was naked and the bedclothes were pulled over the bottom part of his body so I could not see. 
Ian then shouted back at Jules and said, what are you doing disturbing me? And they began shouting at each other and I left. Now the source is Nick Foster's book. Firstly, how utterly repugnant and disturbing. He must have secretly made his way to the studio when Jules was asleep, taken his clothes off and then jumped into bed with Colette and then touched her without her consent. And then when found out by Jules and confronted, he verbally attacks Jules and turns it round on her. He darvoed her. Now darvo means to deny, to attack, to reverse victim and offender. Now again, this is important because it provides further insight, if true, into Bailey's character and into his psychology. What's even more revealing is what happens next, according to Colette. Colette ran back to the house and got dressed. Jules then followed her over and offered her a cup of coffee. Jules then proceeded to apologise for Bailey's behaviour. Wow. Now that is very important to understand. You see, Jules here is owning his behaviour and taking responsibility for it. And in my opinion, she's been here before. Now this again is instructive of coercive control. You see, his behaviour has nothing to do with her, yet she's now doing his bidding, and no doubt it's at his behest. And it's not her responsibility to do so. Why doesn't he own the behaviour himself? But at no time did he apologise or offer an explanation. In fact, Colette said this in her statement to police, which is also quoted in Nick Foster's book. Ian was stamping around outside, roaring and shouting. I couldn't make out what he was saying. He was deranged. Jules then said he had done worse to her, and she lifted up her skirt. There were bruises up and down her legs. Then she lifted her top, and her lower ribs were black and blue. Needless to say, this is extremely concerning. And of course, it's a disclosure of domestic abuse, and it's a disclosure of further beatings. Now, domestic abuse is a pattern of behaviour, as is coercive control. I always doubted that Bailey had just beaten Jules three times. She may have reported him three times, but there would undoubtedly be many more times where this happened, and the level of control is deeply worrying. The fact he has disrespected Jules so much that he jumped into bed with an unsuspecting woman in their home speaks volumes. And then he has the audacity to turn it around on Jules and tell her off for disturbing him. This again shows the level of coercion, the level of gaslighting, and utter domination in the relationship, the reality distortion. And when you're isolated, that reality distortion, well, that becomes your new reality. And also Colette said Bailey had paid her no attention all evening. And so she found the fact that he targeted her and that he jumped into bed with her difficult to comprehend. Unfortunately, I don't. You see, it tells me about predatory behaviour and it screams of male entitlement. And the fact that he doesn't fear the consequence of doing this to a lone female or being caught, I believe he's most likely done this before and gotten away with it. And he would most likely do it again. Where's the fear of consequence? Where's the accountability to make him stop? I just don't see it. And with each assault on Jules, there was no real accountability. And I'm going to talk about that again. But first, I want to tell you about the history. I want to tell you about his first relationship and marriage with Sarah Limbrick. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Sarah came from a wealthy family and she and Bailey married. However, after just four years of the marriage, the relationship deteriorated and, in inverted commas, ran into difficulties. And I'm quoting Michael Sheridan's book here. I wrote down, having listened to that, what does that actually mean? You see, often when I hear the words deteriorated or ran into difficulties, or that a relationship is volatile or stormy or turbulent or tumultuous or toxic, well, oftentimes these are euphemisms for abuse. And so I always like people to describe exactly what they mean. Now remember, Bailey's been described as charming, and when they first met, he was charming, and they bought a beautiful house together. Well, Sarah did, with her money and her family's money, and Bailey discovered that his name was not on the deeds. Now, Bailey claimed that he wasn't violent to Sarah, but what I discovered was that he would throw things, or he would punch walls, and so on. Now, what I would say about that is that when men act in this way, it's a preview of what's to come. In my professional opinion and experience of working cases, 
The message is you're next. It's the dog barking before it bites. The intention, whether conscious or unconscious, is to put you on notice that you will be next. And in my professional experience, in my opinion, it will almost always escalate from there. Now, Bailey said that he wasn't violent, but I would disagree with that. Those acts of punching and throwing things were their acts of coercive control to intimidate. They make it clear who is physically more powerful to re-establish the power and control dynamic using one's physicality. And there was also a time where Sarah kicked him out of the house when Bailey attempted to strangle her. Now, Sarah reported to Avon police. Now, I assume that this means Avon and Somerset. However, he wasn't charged with the assault. But Sarah said she was scared of him. She thought she was going to die. And so she didn't want to testify against him at court. Now, he denies this, of course. Like he said, he wasn't violent to Jules. And there appears to be a pattern of denial, which again is common amongst men who abuse women. Now, what we know about strangulation through the research and through the analysis is that strangulation or any attempt to put hands around the neck, well, that increases the risk to serious harm and femicide sevenfold. So it's really important that we understand how dangerous and risky strangulation is. And again, it's about establishing the power and control dynamic. And the fact that Sarah said she was scared of him and that she thought she was going to die and that she was scared and didn't want to testify against him, well, that speaks volumes to me. And it's a big problem when no charge is laid, as it may look like someone has no history of violence and they can say that they have no history when in fact they do. You see, this creates a false forensic profile and it's a major problem with serial perpetrators. Their histories are not recorded and they're not shared. And so when they move or they move on to a new relationship, their history isn't available to other police forces. And this is a gap that I've been trying to close for more than two decades. So strangulation must be taken seriously and it's a major high risk factor for femicide. And Sarah was scared of him due to his unstable and unpredictable behaviour. Now that's another high risk factor for serious harm and femicide. And in fact, Sarah accused him of being psychologically threatening during the divorce. Now, psychologically threatening, well, he knows which buttons to press in order to control. And that's again a further indicator of coercive control. And he also forged his signature on her £250,000 life insurance policy, which Sarah took out in the event of her death. Now, that's another red flag right there. And it's an indicator of financial abuse. It's evident to me that he enjoys being confrontational and he gets a kick out of it. He feels more powerful psychologically by toying with people. Here's another example of what I'm talking about. On February the 6th, 1997, after Sophie's murder, Bailey was with Bill Fuller, a chef and former gardener who gave Bailey gardening jobs during 1996. Bailey started going through some photos, pointing at people and saying they could have killed Sophie. Then out of the blue, he said this. You did it, didn't you? Bill then said, don't joke about something so serious, and he carried on. Yes, you did it, didn't you? You saw her at the spa, and she turned you on, walking up the aisle with her tight arse. So you went there to see what you could get, but she wasn't interested. So you attacked her, and she got away, 
And so you chased her and stove something into the back of her head and went a lot further than you meant to. Bill Fuller then said, that's like the sort of thing you would do. Now, according to Bill, he laughed and shrugged it off. Bailey then said, actually, that's how I met Jules. I saw her tight ass and wanted her. All of that is sourced to Bill Fuller's statement, and there's extracts of it in Nick Foster's book. There was also another occasion where Bill Fuller said this, when we were working together, he only spoke about women and sex. Again, the source is Nick Foster's book. And in 1993, Bailey wrote this in his diary. I'm totally obsessed by sex. I love my drugs and I adore my drink. Now that's sourced to a Guardian article about the libel trial. Now that's a window into how Bailey views women and Jules, and it's all further interesting insight. His male entitlement is off the charts, in my opinion. Now, after Sarah divorced Bailey, and yes, Sarah had a lucky escape there, Bailey sought refuge in Ireland. And there he met Jules Thomas in Dublin, and he reinvented himself. He changed his name to Owen Bailey to fit in. He learned Irish and folk music and did some gardening, rather unsuccessfully, I might add. John Montague, who Bailey did some gardening work for, wrote an article about the case in The New Yorker and also in The Guardian, and he wrote this about Bailey. Ian Bailey transformed himself into Owen Bailey, or sometimes O'Bell. As Bailey described himself in one poem, the tall Owen Bailey, he chipped in his bit, with his poems on life, he proved a big hit. And interestingly, Bailey's sister said that he intentionally lost his northern accent when he was with his first wife, Sarah. Yet further evidence, he made himself out to be more than. And according to Michael Sheridan, he didn't put in the time or the work in terms of learning Irish folk music. But he'd still try and play in front of people. Now again, this is indicative of his level of self-confidence and bravado. He had no qualms about laying it all out there. And those that he did some gardening work for, including John Montague and Bill Fuller, said his gardening skills were mixed, that he was, and I quote, clumsy, that he rushed things, that he was no good with tools nor machinery, that he didn't follow through with the work. And so again, I'm seeing a pattern of behaviour, that he starts things with gusto, and he talks a good game, but he doesn't deliver. Now, this has echoes of what others said about him as a young journalist in Gloucester, working at the Gloucester Express. Those there said that he felt he should be paid for just turning up and that he didn't like doing any heavy lifting. And according to Michael Sheridan, he was described as very arrogant, entitled, and that he felt he was a ladies' man and had sexual prowess. Suffice to say, he lost a job within six days. Now, these themes repeat... He talks about the guards not having come into contact and interviewed someone like him. He certainly held himself in high regard for someone who's achieved very little in life, other than being known for the man who put himself front and centre in the Sophie Toscan Duplantier murder. And so to Jules. Now Jules was living with her daughters. She is and was then an artist, and she was financially well off. She had been married previously, and those relationships are also important to understand. 
I wanted to learn more about those relationships in order to gain insight as to why Jules didn't see Bailey's behaviour and violence towards her as abuse or his behaviour as being problematic. Now, Jules said that she wasn't scared of Bailey, despite him almost killing her, and she also said that he wasn't violent, despite evidence to the contrary. Now, interestingly, as I said before, Bailey also said that he wasn't violent, despite clear evidence to the contrary, and him being convicted for violence against Jules. And as I mentioned, I saw evidence of Jules walking on eggshells in one specific scene in Murder at the Cottage, which I've already talked about, and I mentioned that that was indicative what I was seeing on screen of coercive control. But it also points to red flag behaviour not being seen as red flags by Jules Thomas. In other words, it's been normalised. And as I say, the red flags are not red flags if they seem like home. I was curious about that and I did some digging into her past relationships. And what I discovered was alarming. But it made sense, sadly. You see, Jules's previous partners were violent to her. In other words, she's a repeat victim of domestic abuse. Jules was married to a Welshman called Christopher Thomas. Well, his name was actually Christopher Charles Doe. He changed his name and took on Jules's surname when they married. In 2009, he pled guilty and was sentenced to six years in prison at Cork Circuit Criminal Court for producing child sexual abuse images and possessing child sexual abuse images. He had forced three West Cork children to strip and get into sexual poses. Christopher Thomas also removed his own clothes, posing naked with two girls, and then he got a third girl to take the photographs of the three of them. He admitted to sexually assaulting two girls at his home on various dates between January 2003 and November 2004. And another of Jules's former partners and the father of one of her daughters also had convictions for violence. So you see, it's more than likely that Jules thought that Bailey was okay in comparison to her previous partners. You see, like I said, red flags are not red flags if they feel like home. She's been desensitised. And she also said that she'd rather have a man than no one at all. And she seemed to put the violence down to the whiskey, saying that it had an effect on him. And throughout, I saw continued evidence of Jules mimicking and mirroring Bailey in the way that he described what was happening in the relationship, the way that he minimised and trivialised the violence. Well, she did the same, and she used very similar language. Now, that's not coincidence. This is part of the brainwashing, the coercive control, the gaslighting. The abuser claims and owns the narrative. The victim then, over time, adopts this narrative too. Again, many abusers do this and their voice is taken on by the victim. So the victim will say things like, well, it's not so bad. And it was only when I did X that they did Y. I.e., I caused it. I'm deserving. It's my fault. I'm to blame. Or they might say, well, it's only when he drinks. Well, he's not violent, despite there being clear evidence that he is abusive and violent even when alcohol is not involved and evidence of control-related behaviour and physical violence. Now, this is evident in spades when listening to Jules describe what's been going on in the relationship, as well as Bailey when he's asked about the violent assaults on Jules at the libel trial. You see, he says it's the alcohol that led to the violence, and she says the same. 
And let's not forget, he was very violent to Jules in May 1996, and the assault started in the car. So had he been drinking then? He was driving, but it's not clear. But he refused to get her medical aid, and he refused to take her to the hospital. And let's not forget, this was the same year that Sophie was killed. Bailey was questioned about his violence by defence lawyer Paul Gallagher at the libel trial. And defence lawyer Paul Gallagher went through the violence episodes, beat by beat, and Bailey didn't like it at all. In fact, under cross-examination, he said this about the August 2001 attack. I was trying to get away from the sofa and out of the room, and she at one point got hold of the crutch. My recollection was that she pulled it. She pulled it towards her. You see here, he's implying it was almost self-induced. Of course, this again is common. The narrative, she brought it upon herself. It's half a dozen of one, half a dozen of the other. I was just trying to get away. I was trying to diffuse the situation. These sorts of things are very common. It's almost like they're lifted from an abuser's playbook. And after beating her with the crutch, he kicked her with the leg that was in plaster. Again, he downplays this, saying it was over in a second and that it was something that just blew up. The defence lawyer, in response, went through Jules's injuries. And Bailey didn't like that one bit. And I expect he didn't, because you can't manipulate others through your own words when you're seeing or you're hearing about physical injuries. And so he listed the black eye, the swollen and damaged cheekbone, the serious cut to her lips that needed reconstruction, the cut to her chin, the bruising to her arms and legs... And Bailey also said that she was hysterical and had taken drink and that it was the alcohol again that led to the violence. Now, a woman being hysterical in inverted commas, well, that's a firm favourite that many abusers use. Often, however, the women are very calm and they're trying to rationalise, they're trying to risk manage, they're trying to talk the person down. And Bailey did admit that he had a temper, but he said it was just with Jules. So I guess that what he's saying there is that that's okay then. And he was trying to rely on it being okay. And sadly, for some, it is. And that's why domestic abuse, it's just not taken seriously. And it should be because it's a big red flag. Oh, and by the way, it's also a lie. It wasn't just to Jules. He also said that he abstained from alcohol. That was also a lie. The lawyer said that Bailey objected to an article saying that you have a history of violence with women. And again, Bailey said that he was violent only to Jules. And Bailey also said that there's a difference to being violent to your partner than to assault and murder. And extracts from his diary, well, they were read out too. And those diaries were given to neighbours to hide before the police came to search Jules's house in which he and Bailey lived. I wonder what else was hidden or destroyed if he had prior notice of the police search. Now here's an extract that was read out in court as quoted in Nick Foster's book. I am an animal on two feet. And about the assault in 1996 that happened in the car, Bailey wrote this. One act of whiskey-induced madness, coupled and cracked And in the act of such awful violence, I severely damaged you and made you feel that death was near. As I lay and write, I know there is something badly wrong with me. I am afraid for myself, a cowardly fear, that although I damaged and made grief your life, 
I may have destroyed my own destiny and future, to the point where I can see, in destroying you, I destroyed me. And only time will tell, but in doing what I did, I'm damned to hell. Now, in response to the extracts being read out, Bailey said that he, the court, should not take it literally. But to me, the poor me syndrome is also evident in his diary. He's more worried about himself than the damage that he caused Jules. Now, the lawyer made the point that Bailey was seeking money from the court when he almost killed his lover and admits to it. It's clear in the diary. And so the lawyer concluded, and I quote, people have a right to be frightened of you. Jules also gave evidence and minimised the attack. However, Bailey himself said that he almost killed her. Jules was asked if he could be violent to other women, and she said no, and that he wasn't violent to his first wife. She defends him time and time again. She's his best defender and supporter. Perhaps she didn't know the history, but I suspect she's in so deep that she can't see the wood through the trees. And that's not to cast blame at Jules's door. It's evidence of the coercive control, of the brainwashing, of the gaslighting. You see, Jules also said that many women were abused much worse than her. So again, often victims don't see emotional and psychological abuse as abuse. They don't see the erosion of self, the walking on eggshells, the living in a fear state as abuse. To them, it's just become normal. The erosion of the soul and someone's peace of mind being eroded and taken away is perhaps the worst crime. And that's why I fought so hard for coercive control to be criminalised in the UK. And now I'm fighting hard in Australia and also in America. You see, women have told me for more than two decades, and I know through my own experiences, bruises fade and broken bones mend. But the psychological harm, the damage, the mind games, the psychological abuse, the drip, 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 the emotional abuse, that stays with you forever. And too often people don't understand the invisible spider's web, like the invisible chains keeping you from leaving, keeping you in situ, keeping you entrapped. And the fact that your self-esteem, your self-confidence, well, it's been eroded. Your autonomy, your agency, it's been eroded to such a degree that you're disabled and paralyzed to take any form of proactive action to leave until you find the courage one day to do so. Now, Jules reiterated what Bailey said, that the violence wasn't premeditated, as if that somehow makes it okay. She did, however, mention his black moods and that he became withdrawn after an episode and he stewed in his own juice and that these cycles happened every few weeks. And yes, this is indicative of the mood state of an abuser who lashes out rather than takes proactive action and takes responsibility and accountability to get help for their behaviour. Now, in the documentaries and the podcast, much more could have been said about coercive control to educate people and raise awareness. But too often, the focus is on the physical abuse. And by the way, it's stated that there were three, in inverted commas, incidents of violence. But remember, that's what was reported there were likely to be many more events. And I call them events and not incidents because we know that it's a pattern of behaviour. And even that word incident, well, that nudges us in the direction that this is a one-off. And with domestic abuse, it's rarely, if ever, a one-off. It's a pattern of abuse and behaviour. 
And we have to ask about the non-physical aspects of abuse and also whether someone feels safe. Jules forgave the unforgivable, the lawyer said. And yes, she did, as it's been her norm for most of her life course and within most of her relationships. And sadly, that can be true for many women. Now, importantly, Judge Moran, in his summing up at the libel trial, said that Bailey was a violent man who was violent to women. That was not in dispute, despite the fact that Bailey said when he gave evidence that he was only violent to Jules, as if that was a redeeming quality and like Jules didn't matter. Well, again, what that tells me is that he was most likely violent to other women if he could get away with it. And if that's the way that he treated the love of his life, Jules, well, that says a lot about how he views women and his sense of entitlement and the power and control dynamic, which we see on screen. You see, his actions and behaviour betray him. It's not about the words. It's about looking at his behaviour and his poor impulse control and his impulsive rage. You see, my research at New Scotland Yard revealed that one in 12 domestic abusers who raped the significant women in their life also raped others outside the home. And I also discovered that one in eight of domestic abusers were violent to their significant partner, but they also posed a risk to other women outside the home. Now just think about that. That's information that everyone should know. Put another way, men are violent and abusive to women that they know, and also to women that they do not know. We're just not making the links across law enforcement, the courts, and across wider society. And I'm a firm believer and proponent of Pareto's principle, the 80-20 rule. Pareto said about the distribution of economic wealth that 80% of the wealth is owned by the 20%. Well, I've been saying for more than two decades that 80% of the crime is committed by the 20% and that we're not making the links. It's the men who are violent, abusive and controlling to their partners that we should be concentrating on. And if we did, if we had a top 10 to 20 list that were always being targeted by police proactively, we would clear up and prevent a lot of violent crime, both inside and outside the home. So just let that sink in. And finally, I mentioned at the top of the episode that things were moving in a positive direction. Well, it's just been confirmed today, hot off the press, November the 4th, that Commissioner Drew Harris has sanctioned a full-blown police reinvestigation. So not a cold case review, but a reinvestigation of all existing statements and evidence. And I have to say, I hope that they're looking at new evidence and new lines of inquiry too. And the new team is currently going through the case files as I speak. And I've heard that they're optimistic that they're finally solved Sophie's case. So I'm extremely happy to hear this. And I'm sure the family are too. I hope they're experienced in homicide investigations and in particular femicide, violence against women and girls. And I hope they call in experts to help. And I know I can speak for Jim and say that he and I would gladly assist. Because 25 years on, it's time for a new approach. And I'm sure you all agree, it's time. So I'm going to end there for now on a positive note. And I know it's a lot to process in this episode. It's a lot to think about. And there's going to be much more next week. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. 
Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Oga Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. 